Welcome to Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. I'm Michael Dowd, your host, and in this conversation recorded on the last day of August 2020, I speak with climate system scientist Paul Beckwith. Paul, I actually asked him to go into some detail around abrupt climate change, so we spend more time on the science than on his personal story, although we get to that as well. But Paul is really one of the main go-to people in understanding Arctic and Antarctic uh, abrupt climate change. He's a climate system scientist. His website is paulbeckwith.net. And uh, he's, one of the, he's one of the people that were inspiring originally in this series. We actually birthed this post-Doom Conversation series in conversation with Paul Beckwith and Paul Traferka uh, when we were in Ottawa in uh, May of 2019. Here's the conversation. Well, Paul, it is an absolute delight to have you as part of this post-Doom series. We, we recorded uh, once, maybe eight months ago, and the audio didn't work out. And so, uh, and it's interesting because 2020 has been such a crazy year with the coronavirus and economic hit and, uh, you know, uh, the Arctic sea lice loss. So I'll invite you to share all about that. But here at the beginning, if you could just introduce yourself to anybody who's not familiar with you, they haven't watched your videos, don't know who Paul Beckwith is, help us get who you are. Yeah, so uh, I'm, uh, I live in Ottawa and uh, married, three kids. Um, I studied uh, engineering physics first at uh, university, uh, McMaster University, and then went on and did a master's uh, degree in uh, laser physics. But the last uh, number of years, I've been at the University of Ottawa. I was studying um, climate change, uh, abrupt climate change. And uh, then I started doing videos. As I, the more I studied abrupt climate change, the more I realized how serious an issue it was to humanity. And uh, I started doing videos to try to um, sort of um, break apart the complex science into easily understood concepts and, and steps, if you like, and uh, present them to the general public so they would get a better understanding as to how serious, you know, climate change was and how quickly, you know, things are changing, you know, much, much faster than any of the, you know, the mainstream science has been indicating for an awful long time. Although I think that is starting to change. I think you know, mainstream science is starting to get extremely concerned. So they're just, uh, you know, <laughs> they're just four or five years at least behind, you know, people like myself who, one of the problems in science is that people are very specialized, they're over-specialized. So they don't look at the big picture. So if you don't look at the big picture, then you can't join the dots on how, you know, our climate system is destabilizing and collapsing you know you might just be studying your specific component and not you know miss the the big picture as to how serious it is so so i do i have a uh, blog paulbeckwith.net and that's usually posted to you know once at least once a week sometimes a couple times a week mm -hmm. and uh i'm also posting um, I get to my information out to the public by my youtube channel just if you google youtube Paul Beckwith, uh, you could easily find it or go to paulbeckwith.net. Yeah. And I've done, uh, I, I don't know, I've lost, I don't know exactly how many, but about a, about um, almost a year ago, I think I was over 500 videos. 
Um, it's mostly 15 minute videos. Um, I don't go over 15 minutes and, you know, sometimes I'll have a, a series of videos. Like I just did a recent series of videos on Greenland ice melt, for example. Um, and, uh, you know, I rely, um, on donations to, to do what I'm doing. Um, I, I, I occasionally teach, um, you know, a course or two at the university of Ottawa, um, as a part-time professor you know, and that's in the geography department. Um, and I've taught uh, climatology, sort of introductory climatology, um, uh, the geography of uh, environmental geography, um, oceanography, think, things like that, a, a wide variety of, of subjects. So I, I try basically to connect the dots on well, you know, yeah, I want, to ask you, I want to ask you a little bit more about that because, I mean, as, as you know, it was with you and Paul Traferka in, uh, in Ottawa, you know, a year and a half ago, that really was the seed that uh, produced this, that we bounced the idea of a post-Doom conversation series with the two of you. And, and uh, you shared at that time something that really struck me, and that is that, you know, you are a very serious chess player. And that part of chess is seeing the patterns. So say a little bit about the connecting the dots and how your own brain works to, to, to facilitate that. Yes. Um, chess is another passion of mine besides uh, studying climate science and getting the information out to the people. So, uh, but one of the problems is with the, you know, technology now, it's so good. You know, you can go on to uh, different chess servers and you can play anytime with any number of people and, uh, it's very, it's, I find it, uh, it's a highly addictive game. So it's very easy to get carried away and just play too much chess. And when I do that, then I think, okay, I've got to get back to my climate work. But, you know, in chess, you, um, the, the, you might think um, that uh, the, uh, you know, that chess, a lot of chess is, you know, if you play more and more chess, you kind of understand patterns and it's a lot of it is pattern recognition, you know, groupings of pieces, how they work together, what's good and what's bad, what's worked in the past. And that knowledge uh, get, lets you look at a chessboard and almost immediately know what the, what the best move is, you know, and as your level gets higher and higher, then the best move is probably more accurate. Most, you know, good, really good players would agree. Yes, that's probably the best move. But it, you narrow it down very quickly to, you know, one or two or three possible moves. And then, and then you start doing the calculations. Like if I go there, he goes there, I go there, he goes there, et cetera. You know, try to calculate what to do. But uh, if you're a beginner player, you, you don't have that understanding of the game. So you kind of look at all the pieces on the board and all parts of the board, and then you come up with a move. But you don't really have a plan. You don't really have you know, a, a good understanding of, 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 of what's going on. So climate science is a bit like that. Um, you know, most people are a piece on the chessboard. Most, most uh, scientists would be, you know, a pawn or a bishop or they're on a specific part of the board. So they're studying a specific part of the geography, say, you know, one glacier on one island in the Arctic and they're not looking, they're not seeing the, the big picture. So, you know, only the person playing the whole, playing the game, moving all of the pieces sees the big picture because they're joining together all of the components. So I often think that that's sort of what I'm trying to do, you know, get the, get the big picture. And then that allows me to sort of make projections as to what I think is going to happen in the near term future and longer term future. And, uh, you know, um, 
also, you know, um, you know, and, and we try in science, we try to do that with, you know, sophisticated computer models, but the models are only as good as what you're putting into it. They're only as good as the concepts you understand. And if you don't make all the connections between the different components of the climate in the Arctic, for example, then your model's not going to be, it's going to be missing a lot of things. And invariably the models are, you know, slower. Climate change is always happening, happening faster than expected. Yeah. Right. It's all, you know, Google faster than expected climate faster than expected Google climate, uh, slower than expected, right? I mean, you you clearly find you know gazillions of hits on climate faster than expected. Yes, Almost right. every every paper, everything that comes out says that. Well, clearly um, expectations are wrong, right? So we need to think beyond you know the individual components of the science and and think, okay, what's the reasonable um, situation you know because we know for example ice melt if it's doubling every you know if ice melt is doubling every eight years or something right then um you can make a projection you can say well sea levels will be this certain level and etc and and the models are way underestimating all of these things and and the models are what policy is based on but yeah. the breakdown is is happening extremely quickly so I think, you know, a lot of people are getting extremely concerned. I mean, look at the, you know, the extreme weather events around the world have, have skyrocketed, right? And this is, this is quite easily explained because the Arctic is warming so fast. Yes. Well, you know, before we get into the questions that I've been asking all the guests in this series, you know, yeah. telling their story and all that kind of stuff, I really want to, because... I'm assuming that a lot of people watching this conversation or listening to this conversation, um, you know, they may not have a clear distinction. What's the difference between climate change and abrupt climate change? What makes it abrupt and how long has that process been in motion? So if you could just give us sort of a, a quick tutorial on abrupt climate change here at the beginning, that, that would be useful. Okay, well, abrupt uh, really kind of implies um, that you reach some sort of, you know, you might go up slowly in terms of the change of a parameter like temperature, and then suddenly you'll get a spike up, an abrupt change, a very, very rapid spike, and then you'll reach a level where it, you might get a flattening off again. So there's a threshold that you pass when you start making that rapid change. Um, it's a very non-linear effect. Um, it very it surprises people. So abrupt is really when the change um, suddenly becomes takes off, if you like. Um, it suddenly becomes much much larger than the forcing that is occurring than what's causing the change. So I like to think uh, a couple of analogies are, are very very good. There's loads of analogies for abrupt change in nature, for example. So take water, lower the temperature, lower the temperature, you know, bring it very close to zero, but above zero, it's still a liquid, you know, hit zero, hit that magic temperature. And I'm talking, you know, go to like eight decimal places or something. And if you're like 0 0.00001 above, you know, for fresh water, it's water. And then you go to 0, 0.000 and it starts to freeze, right? And then, so this is an abrupt, uh, so a phase change in, in, in a solution, you know, in, where, where the water is going to a solid, the liquid to a solid, that's a very abrupt change if you think about it. Mm -hmm. um, if think of a canoe, you know, you're in a canoe and you're tipping, 
and you reach a point where it's a point of no return. You go a little bit further and you tip right over and, and you're in a different state in the water and you go a little bit back and the canoe rights itself. So there's a zone of kind of stability where, where you like the, the system likes to be stable and then it reaches, but if it exceeds a certain limit, then it tips, if you like. So a tipping point is, is uh, an abrupt change. Or, you know, if you break a stick, if you bend a stick, and then take the pressure off, it straightens, but you start bending it and you exceed the elastic limit of the, molecule, the wood molecules, then they start to deform and pull apart and you hear the cracking and then the thing breaks. And you know, it's, it's an abrupt change and you're in a different state, right? You That's can't exactly. put together that stick. Or, you know, the, but an, an, a good analogy too is if you're on a mountaintop, think of a ball on top of a hill Right, and if you push the ball a little bit, and I, if it's at the very peak of the hill, if you push it a little bit in any direction, it's going to start going down the hill into a different state. Whereas if so, this is a um, this is a lot of the climate parameters are like this. Whereas the the opposite equilibrium or stable state would be the ball in the bottom of a hill, and you push it a little bit, and because in the bottom of the hill it goes up higher in all directions, and then gravity pulls it back down, and then it oscillates about a bit, and then stops. So that's the, you know, that would be a um, so, equilibrium state, if you like. Yeah, is, is that your, I, I've sometimes said that abrupt climate change, because I try to make things easily understandable. I said, imagine thousands or hundreds of thousands, or in some cases, millions of years of climate change in a lifetime or half a lifetime yes. or two lifetimes. I mean, that's right. Yes. And is your sense that the reason that so many of the IPCC, uh, projections are you know that things are worse than the worst case right. is that because yes. they're not factoring in some of these tipping points these these uh, abrupt yes changes? yes yes exactly and you know we can talk about in the climate system abrupt changes would be um for example the 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 complete loss of arctic sea ice right so so this would first occur in the fall you know in, in, in the september minimum no sea ice and then it would free, start freezing, but uh, you know because the water is warmer to start off and it takes longer to freeze, the the, the freezing season is shortened. So the next year, you know, the, it's instead of you know the first year when it's gone, the so-called blue ocean event—that's mm -hmm. the term I use to coin it. Mm -hmm. You know, and that's sort of be, become used quite often. That um, is that's a t definite tipping point. You know, and then because once you reach that ice-free state and you can reach it for longer and longer durations in subsequent years and then eventually a total ice-free arctic yeah, um, I, I or in one of your videos yeah. that you talked about you know that evidence seems to suggest that it wouldn't take more than about 12 to 15 years after the first blue ocean event in september for most of the year to be ice -free. yeah yeah i i think i think about a, a decade or less for that i think you know, once we have the first blue ocean event, um, the ice will be gone for say, uh, you know, a few weeks to a month in September. And then within a few years, I would fully expect there to be no ice for say, um, July, August, September, or maybe maybe August, September, part of October. But, you know, I'm starting to think, initially I thought it would bracket September, but now I'm thinking it would more, it, it would be much more, into the summer months so mm -hmm. it's going to be very asymmetric about september i think but and and then um you know once you get one of the key things is that you get a mixing of the water in the in the arctic because there's warmer water underneath 
And as that warmer, as you lose sea ice for, for longer periods, that warmer water just completely mixes with the surface water and that prevents the freeze up occurring when it does, so delays it. So yeah, I still think about, about a decade or so. And uh, you know, the, most, most, most scientists uh, would say, yeah, that's ridiculous. But uh, you know, I, I think uh, they're, they're being ridiculous. I mean, they also, most scientists also said that the, when, when we lose all the Arctic sea ice and there's just a little bit left, the little bit will be left around the land, stuck to the land, which is ridiculous and clearly not going to be the case. And we can see that even now because, you know, the last remnants of ice left will be a small slush, slushy pool of ice circling the Arctic Ocean, the, the North Pole, I believe, circling the North Pole. Um, and if you look at the melt characteristics now, you can see, you know, the ice is pulling, pulling. I mean, I think it's pretty clear now that that's going to be the case. And I've been saying that for many years. So, yeah. but but it's not just the Arctic we're talking about. We're talking about the climate of the planet when we lose the Arctic sea ice. You know what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic, and that that's my quote, by the way, from yes, I about a decade ago. And I, I actually said, you know, what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. It's not like Las Vegas, right? But the the second part is always 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 dropped off. So. You know, it's good. I should have trademarked uh, these these yeah. quotes, right? Yeah, but, well, you, uh, you actually have quite a few. Uh, as I yeah, I, I have. A, I have to come up with. I haven't had any lately, so I'll have to. Uh, but I, you know, it, there's a lot going on right now. Like, like it's also there's a lot of emotional turmoil for 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 climate scientists and for anybody studying the system because, you know, the, we see that the system is worsening and getting more and more unstable and abrupt and more extreme weather events. And I can, you know, tie, I haven't tied those to the Arctic yet, but it's the jet streams. Um, and then we get hit by this virus, which, you know, is, um, you know, and we're gonna get more of these type of viruses uh, as we continue to decrease biodiversity, as we do monoculture farming, as we have less and less, um, you know, wildlife areas of the planet. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, also the, um, the turmoil, the, the, uh, the geopolitical turmoil from climate change, you know, it's going to, you know, the abrupt weather, the extreme weather events are going, going to bankrupt a lot of countries and it's already happening. They're responsible for countries breaking up, you know, look at Syria and the drought. And I mean, the U.S. is, is being devastated by climate events. And it's it's uh, you know it it it's looking like it's going to complete chaos in the U.S. I mean, we can talk about the election coming up and the government <laughs> and things like that. Um, you, know, uh, you know, so as climate change causes more and more stresses on systems, then countries are turning inward. They want to build walls. They want to keep out people. There's you know, especially as we head to global food shortages. And then, you know, governments become more extreme and uh, more extreme governments and xenophobic and nationalistic governments are right, right wing governments who will then, who then deny climate change, right? So, so we're, we're, losing, our, we're losing our grip on, on, on things. We're losing our ability to actually even deal with it. I mean, and, th and this is what, you know, so the economy and, you know, democracy, all of these things are undergoing abrupt they're, they're under when before something goes through that abrupt change 
generally, if you look at the frequency of oscillations, um, so up and down movement in the parameter, generally, if they're very, very fast, the system has some resiliency and can return to a stable state. But when they start slowing down, the excursions become much bigger and then the system flips to another state. So we're seeing in a lot of things, uh, we're seeing these gyrations that are th this, this frequency slowing down, if you like, these gyrations, which, are, which can all be sort of precursors to uh, abrupt, an abrupt tipping event. So, um, I mean, look at the, you know, even things like the stock market. I mean, with the virus, it like cratered and now it's almost recovered. But I mean, this is, this is artificial. This is being, the, so, so much money is being pumped up to because the election is coming, coming up. Exactly. I mean, you know, we can talk about abrupt changes in that as well. Uh, so, yeah, let me, uh, let me actually, let me, let me steer this back around to, because I really want to hear, I mean, you, you are one of the main go-to people on abrupt climate change and have been for over a decade. And um, so one question I just want to ask is a practical one. If somebody is hearing you and they want to know more, you've got 515 minute videos. Like, do you have like a, a, a best hits, a top five, a top six, a six pack? Like how, what would well, be like your best primer on abrupt climate change? Like if you watch these three or these 10 or these five, you'll sort of get up the speed. How, do you, have you created yeah. anything like that? Um, not, I, I, I should. In fact, I wish somebody um, would, would uh, go and do that for me and I can keep just focusing on <laughs> producing my videos, right? Because, uh, <laughs> um, I, I, like, uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, one of the things you can do in YouTube is, uh, you know, when you go to my channel, um, first of all, if there's a specific topic that you're interested in, then just Google, you know, do a specific uh, search in the, in, in the video, you know, in YouTube for that video. Like if you want to see about global dimming or if you want to see about Greenland uh, ice melt, or if you want to see, you know, general about tipping points or, you know, any topic at all. I've done so many videos, I've, I've covered covered most of them no i know um, but but, but and, it's like and, walking uh, into a library without a librarian and you yes. don't know the system it's like i'm gonna no. encourage i'm gonna encourage you to do something yeah. like uh meteorologist nick humphrey did where he did a 16 part series on the various aspects of, of abrupt climate change and then created a 23 minute video which was in some ways kind of a summary overview uh, right. of that and and you're yes. so substantial that you really deserve to uh, there ought to be a way so, for somebody to spend yeah. maybe two hours or less and get like, yes. wow, like the, the primer yeah. on abrupt climate change from Paul Becker. Right, right. Um, I, yes, I mean, that's a very good point. I, I should probably have a, have a look at that. Um, but anyway, in a nutshell, um, the, we're losing, uh, you know, the planet is warming because of greenhouse gases increasing, trapping heat. So the, but the warming is very non-uniform. Uh, because the Arctic is becoming a much darker place as the ice on the land and the snow, uh, ice and snow on the land and the ice, the sea ice, as that melts back, there's dark ocean water underneath. So the reflectivity or albedo of the Arctic is greatly decreasing. So more of the heat from the sun in the summer is going, is being absorbed uh, into the ice and snow and uh, land than was before, less is being reflected up because the Arctic's darker. So the Arctic is heating much, much faster uh, 
And the, tr the true number, you know, it's at least three to five times. Um, yes. Forget the two times, it's three to five. It depends on how high up in the Arctic you are. You know, there's some periods where we get tremendous amounts of heat, uh, you know, in the winter, in, you know, complete darkness right at the North Pole. And this is because as the Arctic is warming so much, the jet streams are there because there's a temperature difference. The Arctic's colder, the equator's warm. That temperature difference creates the movement of air and the jet streams form as a result of that. So as the Arctic warms much faster than the equator, the jet stream slows down and it becomes much, much wavier in the north-south direction. And these waves can get stuck in place. And this is why we get the extreme weather events. Um, to give you an example, a high pressure in the ridges of the wave, um, it was stuck over Greenland a lot in 2019 and therefore the skies were clear and in the winter it didn't get much snow. So it had a record net ice loss of 532 gigatons of ice. And that's double the average loss over the last few decades. Um, and uh, that will of course contribute greatly to sea level rise. And that was also usually coincides with a, with a sea ice uh, minimum, near, near a record sea ice minimum. Um, so, so all of these things, but, but that's basically the gist of it. So because the jet streams guide storms as well, the storms are moving slower because the jet stream is moving slower. So, and also uh, for every degree Celsius rise in temperature, there's a 7% increase in water vapor in the atmosphere. So there's more water vapor and as the water vapor rises and condenses into droplets, it releases energy. So the energy in the atmosphere is much, much greater now than it was before. So all of these things are, are working to um, cause problems um, yeah. for humanity. And, and I see the biggest problem being, you know, our ability to, to grow food. Right, yeah. I mean, that's what a lot of people don't realize is that they're, you know, are only like a half a dozen major food growing regions of the world. And if two or three of those fail in the same year, you've got yes. serious famine problem. Say yes. something before, but before I get to the personal stuff, which I want to go to now, but uh, uh, can I say one more thing about oh, yeah. the, the food? Yeah. Um, yeah, sure. There, I'll do a video very shortly. So this is, um, this is a heads up. Um, I, I've done one in the past, but basically the, the, the valley in Ca the central valley in California, it represents 1% of um, area, agricultural area in the US. And I read that it's about 25% of the food supply in the US. Wow. Okay, now in eight, just before the Civil War, there was something called an atmospheric river. These exist, uh, it's, it's like regions in the atmosphere, you know, with very, very high amounts of moisture. Mm -hmm. And it started raining in California. This was 1862, I believe. And uh, um, it just, it didn't stop raining. And you basically had uh, the, the California Valley filled with water. So Sacramento was under, um, under, I don't know, 10 feet, 15 feet of water. So that whole fertile valley was covered in water. And this is not a one of, this is a periodic event wow. and uh, it's overdue. So imagine something like that, you know, and the climate change should, should make it a higher probability, higher risk of occurring. So imagine that happening, you know, knocking out a quarter of the US food supply in just one 
you know, in a matter of a few months. Right. Right. Well, so, yeah. so there's there's all of these black swans, if you like, yes, these, exactly. you know, very, very low probability events. But if climate change is making them higher probability, you know, riskier um, and, you know, the idea of a one in a thousand or one in a hundred or whatever, those numbers assume a stable climate and we don't have a stable climate. So those numbers are generally out, out to lunch. Exactly. Say something yeah. about the the the. Uh, a lot of people don't know. It was news to me when I first learned a few years ago from you and, and from Nick Humphrey mostly um, that that the energy, you know, why is it that the loss of ice, the loss of the cryosphere uh, is such a big deal? Say something about latent heat and that sort of thing. Right. Okay. So um, my last video, I actually talked about the um, overall loss of the uh, cryosphere. Um, and uh, we've lost uh, 28 trillion tons of ice on the planet um, in the last uh, 23 years. Uh, well, uh, 23 years. This was up to 2017. I, I think the study only took date up to 2017. And the study just came out last week. Um, uh, and uh, so, it, so in 23 years, ending in 2017, 28 mil trillion trillion tons. I mean, this, and, uh, you know, it breaks down the components, like so much was due to Arctic sea ice. I mean, some components wouldn't raise sea level, like Arctic sea ice, but then, you know, Greenland is high up there, and Antarctica is high up there, and, you know, the southern oceans, the northern hemisphere, it's about 60% of that loss is in the northern hemisphere, about 40% in the southern hemisphere. Um, and the energy, in order to melt all of that ice was about 3% of the total um, net solar radiation hitting the earth. So what that means is, you know, as we have less and less ice, the ice keeps the Arctic cold and the Arctic is cold so that there's ice, right? So it's like both things are happening. So as we lose as the Arctic warms and we get less ice and the Arctic warms more, we get even less ice and less ice, then the Arctic, like in the summer, the air temperature right at the surface of the ocean over the ice is, is close to the freezing point of the ice. Now, because it's ocean water, salty, you know, it's about minus 1.8 degrees Celsius instead of zero degrees Celsius, the freezing point. But then as we get melt and then freeze and melt and freeze, there's less salt is rejected but not generally that much in first year ice. Although if you take first year ice and melt it, you know, there's gonna be brine pockets in it. So you're gonna get some salty water. But anyway, whatever the free, you know, close to the freezing point. So it's the air atmosphere is pegged at that temperature. So without ice, then, then and, and, and the amount of energy, the, the number I give is, is uh, if you've got a kilogram of ice and you melt that kilogram of ice, with a certain amount of energy, right? And now you take that energy and you apply it to the water that's slightly above freezing, right? It'll bring the water temperature up to about 70 degrees Celsius, that kilogram of water, okay? So it takes a tremendous amount of energy to, to melt the ice and that keeps the, so that's the latent heat, the stored heat, stored component. And then as you have no, when you have no ice left, then we're talking, all that energy goes into heating the, the water, and that's the sensible heat, called the sensible heat. So the ice, you know, it keeps the Arctic cold. 
when the ice is gone, the temperature will skyrocket. Now, if you look at the German uh, data, the DMI data on the Arctic temperature north of 80 degrees Celsius, and I, I'm gonna do a number of Arctic videos again very soon on this, because there's a couple of very significant papers that have just come out recently. Um, and one of them is talking about the the, the warm water underneath. Normally you'd have uh, the ice and then it would be melting and you'd have some fresh water lens at the surface and then underneath would be warmer water. And the reason why it was underneath is because it was heavier because it was laden with salt. Okay, so the buoyancy of the density of ocean water depends on two things, on the temperature and on the salt content. So you can have warmer water underneath colder water and the warmer water being denser because it's laden with salt and that makes it heavier. So as there, there's enough heat underneath in that, and normally it's about 150 meters below the ice, but I'll be discussing a paper in, in a few days about how that's shallowing. It's no longer 80 meter, it's no longer 150 meters below. In some regions it's 80 meters, in some regions it's mixing with the surface water. There's enough energy there to melt the ice that is in the Arctic right now four times over. So I think this is one of the, this is one of the tipping, abrupt tipping point changes right. of the Arctic. And, and one of the terms is Atlantification of the Arctic. Like as you get mixing of that water, then there's already mixing um, on the, uh, on, on parts of the outskirts of the Arctic. And this is why the ice doesn't form there even in the winter. Okay, so I think it's pretty clear that once this process extends across the Arctic, there'll be no ice in the Arctic year round. And then we're in a totally different situation because the only cold spot left up in the Arctic will be Greenland. So, you know, the jet streams, why would they circle around the North Pole? They're gonna circle around the, the cold part, which is the center of Greenland. The center of Greenland is offset from the North Pole about 17 degrees. It's about 73 degrees north latitude north so if so not only are the jet streams slowing down and becoming wavier but if they change their center of rotation right then i mean our weather patterns go go to hell basically yeah i mean complex civilization based on uh growing grain at scale becomes really difficult in a climate change that rapidly yes exactly well, Paul, this, okay, so I want to come around to, you know, the, the title of this series is Post-Doom, Conversations or Regenerative Conversations, Exploring Overshoot Grief, Grounding, and Gratitude. And because I haven't done this in many, many conversations, this is actually one of, those, yeah. one of the last conversations that we're going to have, um, uh, at least for some period of time, because Connie and I want to create a leader facilitation guide because in the same way that i'm encouraging you to create yeah. like a little primer we're right. trying to do we've got 70 of these conversations so if somebody has you know yeah. the time to show a half a dozen to their group you know which ones do they choose that kind of thing so we're going to create well that. this one of course right yeah no exactly, exactly. <laughs> say something about how you how you grew up like your story of like did you grow up with a sense of perpetual progress as most of us in the last half of the 20th century had some sense of you know, that each generation would have it better and easier and wealthier than, you know, the previous ones. And so how did that shift for you? So anything you want to say about your story of your journey yeah. of coming to this? Um, and then anything, uh, and then sort of a second question beyond that, what tools or exercises or ways of thinking or <laughs> distractions or whatever help you uh, wake up each day doing what there is to do and not worrying about the things that are out of your control individually or collectively for that matter? Well, you know, that's, uh, 
<laughs> I don't know where to start on that, but uh, I'll start you know, with your story. The, well, the mm -hmm. last thing the last thing you said is, uh, you know, know what is out of your control and what's in your control, right? I think for your own life, I think that's one of the the most important uh, things to stay, you know, sort of, on, you know, keep your feet on the ground and and keep. Uh, you know, keep a stable sort of state of mind. I mean, you have to be able to function, right? It's no good, uh, you know, getting getting depressed and not being able to do anything or, you know, moping or, you know, uh, like nobody likes that state. I mean, the human mind doesn't like that state. So, right. you know, the human body is built to move, right? If, if you're, if you're uh, you know, a, a gorilla or a great ape, you can lounge around all day and, and, then, and then when you have to go hunt or whatever, leap up into the trees and go and, you know, your body is able to do that, but not the human body. I mean, the human body, we need, we're built to move. We need to move. So, you know, whether it be walking or biking or swimming or so, you know, I'm a big believer in these, um, in these uh, metrics, like the smart watches and things, um, you know, I have, I have uh, been using one. I got one as a present for myself uh, right when the coronavirus hit back in March. And, uh, you know, it gives you your heart rate. It gives you your resting heart rate. It has all of these different features on it. You know, it's got a GPS. So when you go for a walk or a bike, you can see how far you've gone. And uh, it links to your phone, of course. And uh, I find it really useful for um, keeping you know, keeping a lot of us, we look at exercise as a, as a chore, really. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, whereas we're trying, you know, reading something, trying to learn something. I mean, exercise is, is, is so important for our body, for our, it's not, I'm not talking just our physical state, but our emotional state, our mental mm -hmm. state. Um, you know, it really keeps, it's, it's vital. Like it's, and so along with exercise, of course, you know, uh, you know, try to eat, um, vegetables you know not too much fats uh watch your you know like like all of the things that people say but it's a lot easier said than done i mean most people we know what we need to do in order to stay healthy and and uh you know they say use it or lose it i mean if you don't you do your walking then you know do your and also some strength exercises i think you know and i'm far from perfect i mean sometimes you know it's like i slip and you know i like you know, so right now I'm on sort of a phase where I'm trying to lose a bit of weight and I'm trying to, um, you know, get a lot healthier physically. Um, I mean, one of the things, uh, so that's a, that's a big way to, to cope and, and sort of to compartmentalize, you know, is always a good method, but it's becoming harder because, you know, if, if a storm comes and hits you, how do you compartmentalize? Like, 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 uh, you know, when, when we see sort of when we read about, uh, you know, look at the images. Oh, yeah. The other way is, you know, is you're, you're in charge, right? You can turn your phone off for a few yeah, days. Ad adaptive you, attention uh, is, you, is one healthy way. Yeah, you, you can you can just not look. I mean, that you know, you, your phone, the, the, the way it's designed, the way the algorithms are designed is, you know, if you're if, like stuff is pushed to you. Right. So if you're looking at, uh, 
you know, specific things, then you'll come up, say you're looking at wildfires or something in California, you look at those and then, you know, there'll, all, there'll be these links to previous wildfires and wildfires elsewhere. And you could, you could get, fall down this black hole and just look at wildfires for hours around the world and say, oh my God, we're all going to burn, <laughs> right? And then look at floods and do the same thing. Well, maybe the floods will put out the wildfires. I don't know. But, uh, you know, the, the point is, it's very easy on the web to to get to go down these black holes especially if you're following what's going on in in climate so i mean years ago when i was looking at extreme weather events and uh you know they they you know i mean now you every day something is happening right some some there's climate is in the news a lot a lot more but then you wonder why politicians are ignoring all of this right and Politics seems to be going the complete opposite direction to what is needed to address any of these these problems. So, you know, you can very quickly get into this spiraling down loop, and uh, you know, you're you're uh, you have to function as a person. So, if you find yourself going down this, just don't look at it for a few days. The world is still going to be there, hopefully, <laughs> in a few days. You know, it's going to take time for. And and the idea of you know the idea. See, one of the things about doom and post-doom is, you know, when we think about doom, doom isn't just one point of time. You know, I would say it's more, you know, uh, it's more death by a thousand cuts is the analogy. So, you know, when, you know, food prices go up, for example, you know, some countries are affected way, way more than other countries because they're spending, you know, people in those countries are just wealthy and they're spending more and more of their income on food and surviving. So when, you know, if you're spending half your income on food and food prices double, well, you know, you're, right. you're triple, you know, you're in a dire straits, right? So, you know, there's, so, so it's, um, you know, it's not like the whole world will collapse overnight, you know, at any right. given, on any given date, it's that, right. you know, things just deteriorate. And if you look at the, if you look at the, uh, you know, the U.S., for example, the U.S. is being hit extremely hard by by storms. So, you know, the Hurricane Laura is the late the latest, right? And it submerged parts of the Louisiana coast, and you know, lots of people without power, lots of people without you know homes, uh, things flooded out, huge you know huge evacuations. You know, a few months ago there was straight line winds reaching almost hurricane strength in in something called the Derecho which went across, I think, uh, you know, some of the mid, uh, mid, mid, mid uh, central, midwestern states and uh, caused tremendous amounts of damage to crops and also structures, you know, and then of course, California is, there's the wildfires going on there. Um, you know, as the drought was there. Austra- as there was in Australia. In, in Australia you know, and yeah, and so we're, people, we're really so these your, things, yeah. yeah these we're really things are, in the early stages, it seems to me, and this is one of those things about tipping points about what, you know, what is in our control and what may in fact be out of our control now. And the, the conflagration yes. of many of the world's forests due to beetle kill and then extreme heat and then drought and, you know, lightning fire. Yeah. I mean, this is- and, and, and the, with the forest, it's a, it's a double whammy because yeah. uh, the forest is absorbing carbon dioxide. And, uh, you know, when you have the fire, it releases it all very, very quickly. And exactly. if the uh, 
area is much, if the weather patterns return to what they were before, then the, tr the forest can grow over time. But often the regime is changing and if a drought is hitting that regime, then the forest won't even grow back, right? It'll be replaced by grassland or something which absorbs much less carbon. So, um, you know, and this is a huge problem. This is another tipping point or abrupt change, for example, the Amazon rainforest, you know, could very, very quickly if the weather patterns over that region switch from climate change with the jet stream patterns changing, then, then if those, um, you know, then what will happen is it won't take years and years and years to switch. There'll be massive, massive drought, massive, massive fires that will take out the forest and then grasslands will grow in place. So in the space of a decade or, or less, you know, five years, we could have a complete replacement of those rainforests with with grasslands through the mechanism of, of, of fire. Right. So so these things can, you know, an abrupt change is when you think your relationship is going very well and your girlfriend just takes off, right? Or your wife says, I want a divorce. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you, you, you know, it's an abrupt change. I mean, you, you uh, and, uh, you know, we tend to um, not see these things coming because we, you know, we're, we're linear thinkers. We think of things changing gradually, right? We, you know, an abrupt change is always a, a big surprise, right? It's, yeah. a, it's a big, oh my God, how did that happen? Or, you yeah, know, I, your, your, your life is going great and then you're on the highway and some drunk guy cuts across and, and uh, you know, kills a couple family members and you're in the hospital for six months. You know, I mean, that's an abrupt change, right? I mean, those are, abrupt changes are very, very, um, they're, they're rare, fortunately, right? And this is why if they happened all the time, our lives would be completely chaotic all the time. But, you know, we reach some level of stability and then the abrupt change comes along and boom, you know, and, uh, you know, it, it, everything's different. Everything changes, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, this is, I, I mean, let, let's, like, like I, I, you know, I, I'm really concerned about, about what's happening in, in the U.S., as many people are, you know, around the world outside the U.S. I mean, it really looks like, um, you know, I, I mean, I, I could not watch much of the Republican convention. There's no platform for the Republicans. I mean, there, there's basically, it's a party, it's a party of, of Trump. And, um, you know, the more he gets away with, the more he attempts to do, and uh, it's setting the stage uh, for, you know, complete uh, chaos in, in the U.S., I think. I, like, it's, uh, it's, it's extremely serious, uh, you know, serious situation. I, I agree, um, and, and I don't know, you know, there may not be an election. I mean, all of this, we'll, we'll edit this out, I'm yeah. sure, but, uh, you know, I don't want this to yeah. be too political, but, uh, yeah, but I, yeah. I, yeah, I mean, whatever happens in the election that's going to be contested, I mean, we're definitely looking at a... a a process yeah. of uh, increasing chaos here in the United States. Yes, yes, and this is what happens. Is this is abrupt, abrupt changes that that occur, yes. and people look back. You know, often you don't. You know, it's only looking in the rearview mirror that you say, "Ah, oh, we passed an abrupt change." Yeah, right. I've heard uh, it said. Yeah. I'm I'm a, I'm sort of a collapsologist, a, a lay or right. yeah. you know, professional in the sense that I, this is what I do is share with audiences. But collapsology yeah. is this field, and you know things collapse gradually, and then all at once, or all you know all of a sudden. Yeah. Kind of thing. Yes. Yes. Uh, well, Paul, I want to I want to begin winding down, and, and I really want to invite you to share anything that you'd like to uh, about 
you know, the last several decades of your life? How did, how is this, how have you processed this? How did you come to understand abrupt climate change? And then what have been the significant mileposts in your own journey over the last, say, decade or two or three, if you want to share, but just how, how did you yeah. grow up and then how did you come to this where you are now? Well, it's funny because I have some memories um, of when I was very young and uh, I, I, you know, I think, I think I sort of recognized, you know, it was all growth and development and new buildings going up and highways being widened and everything was always changing, right? And perfectly good buildings would be knocked down and replaced with larger buildings. And, you know, it was just, um, you know, and as the global population was rising and you know, the projections were higher and higher, it, it, it seemed pretty obvious that, um, you know, things would not be able to continue like that forever. You know, I used to have some of these dreams when I was very young of being like in sort of an elevated area, maybe on the side of a mountain in a cave, you know, and looking out and like the world is in total chaos and turmoil, right? It's like, call it an, a dream, it's more like a nightmare, right? So the things were just going to co completely collapse at some point. And, you know, it's funny, it's funny those, those stories because, um, you know, you kind of like push them in the back of your mind. I mean, you're uncomfortable thinking about them, but you know, as you see, um, as you see the climate, uh, you know, kind of going chaotic and collapsing, you know, you kind of, you, you, you're, you kind of, I think, I think the, the most mature and the, the way to deal with it is, is to kind of, you know, we, 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 the, the idea, the mantra, don't worry, be happy, you know, I think is a harmful mantra because, you know, in order to be happy, you have to know what um, what the negative side is like, right? You have to, like, like you can't really know what happy is unless you ha feel some pain, say for the, if you feel pain for the earth and think that things are going all downhill and you, you feel that pain and you, you accept that, kind of, you know, accept that that's gonna be a feeling and that that's, it's not you. Like it's just, it's a natural human response to what is what you hear and what you see going on. And you still need to be able to find, uh, you know, joy in small day-to-day -day things, you know, looking at a nice flower, going for a walk, going for a swim, you know, I mean, you're walking on the earth, you're breathing right now. I mean, that's a miracle. I mean, you know, the earth is floating through space. We don't know of other planets uh, where this is happening. So you know, the, um, I think the Queen a few years ago, Queen of England had it in part one of her speeches, she says that joy and sorrow are intertwined, right? And they're very, very intertwined. And if you just, if your mind pushes back all of the sorrow out of the way, then you're not going to be able to deal with it when it happens. And it happens in everybody's life, whether it's a parent dying or, you know, a child getting very sick or, I mean, our lives are, the human condition is, is is to have both right and uh i think the acceptance of of it and not trying to push all of the bad stuff out of your mind sort of you know kind of i'm not saying in, embrace it but it's it's part of life i mean you know even even our own mortality is is part of you know we're, we're making space if you like for future generations 
you know, and a lot of the pain comes in is, well, you know, maybe the future, there won't be future generations if we, tr if we continue to screw things up as badly as, as we're doing. Right. So, right. you know, you become, you know, you become sort of, you look at it from more of a philosophical point of view or you, you know, um, and, and you just say, you know, I have to keep putting one foot in front of the other foot and uh, make the best of I, uh, that I can out of any situation that comes, comes to me. Right. Yeah. I mean, one of the biggest um, things that you have to be watch out for is feeling sorry for yourself, you know. You know, if you if something bad happens and you feel sorry for yourself, oh, why me? Woe is me, right? And you think everybody else, you know, you're looking through these dark colored glasses and everybody else seems to be happy or, you know, having rosy lives or whatever. But see, I mean, that, that's not the case. Like, like pe people, you know, try to put on a happy face to other people, but you don't really know what's going on in their lives, right? Exactly. Um, and, you know, you need, also, it's very helpful to look at, um, you know, look at some of the things that, that, like, Victor Frankl, is it? He wrote the book in The Prisoner of War, you know, in, in, the, in the extermination camps during World War II in, in Germany. And, you know, the, the stuff he had to go through and how he, survived and how he coped and how he came out of it. I mean, you know, how to build up this sort of inner strength. I mean, all kinds of stuff is going to be happening. It's, it's important to keep track of the internal versus the external. Some horrible event happens externally, right? What affects you and your emotions and stuff is not, it's not the external event directly, Right. It's so, the it's how you internalize. It's how you interpret it. It's how you internalize it. It's that inner voice telling you, you know, how, how you're gonna, you know, and and we need to all build this kind of, think of it um, as a a shell, you know, a protective shell around our psyche, right? And and stuff bad that's happening is all outside that shell, and some of it tries to penetrate in, and we feel really sad and upset, and we try to push it out to maintain an, an even keel. So, you know, the idea, and, you know, many people can do this, like, like uh, you know, meditation is one way of dealing with this, the idea of mindfulness, living, living in the moment, um, the idea of religion gives this to a lot of people, um, you know, the idea of, uh, you know, um, just, um, you know, I don't have control over those external things, I have control over how I deal with it, and I need to stay you know, stay sane and stay, you know, live, stay living, living a life and so on, even with all of this stuff going on outside. So, but it's always a learning process. Like, no, we're, you know, we're, nobody's can do this perfectly, right? So there are going to be points where, you know, you have to sort of step back, step back and say, okay, you know what, I'm just going to go work in the garden, or I'm going to work on a project outside with my hands, or I'm going to, you know, do my stamp collection, or I'm going to just go and, you know, hang I'll out with friends. Chess or play some chess and uh you know like you know there's there's different ways we we need to you know to to uh cope with things i guess so yeah, yeah. no that's, so, that's helpful i mean i had a friend just the other day i was in a conversation with a longtime friend uh who was you know practically you know so so depressed about things uh yeah. societally collapse eco ecologically climate wise and stuff like that and I was talking about this post-doom conversation series, and she said, you know, how do people wake up and, and stay, 
you know, on purpose and, and excited to be alive still. And I said, well, yeah. that's what these post-doom conversations are. You've got 70 different ways that that happens. Yeah. There's no one way. There's no, you know, there's no right. one answer. Uh, lots of different ways yeah. to that place of mostly joy, mostly gratitude, mostly, uh, yeah. uh, you know, being present to the miracle of life and being as big a blessing as you can to other people and to the world and to the future for as long as we have. Yeah, I mean, our, our brains, um, it's very interesting how our brains evolved because they evolved in different stages, right? The lower order stuff and so on. And I mean, the fear and flight, the fear or flight thing um, response is right there in the lower part. And, you know, we tend to dwell, we do tend to dwell, our brains tend to dwell on sort of the, the, the negative things, the bad things. And this is a survival mechanism. Exactly. Right? If a lion eats Joe over in the, in the grove of trees way over there, then I'm going to remember that. And I'm not going to go over that grove of trees because I want to survive, right? So the thing is, is but, but what is sort of a miracle about the brain is you can have 20 of these negative things. And all you need is one or two or a few of these positive things. And those one or two of the positive things, can they can cancel out all those 20 negative things and allow us to, to be sort of happier and stable and so on. Right. I mean, it's 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 uh, it's not a one for one exchange. Right. And this is this is this is an amazing, you know, feature of, oh. of our brain. I mean, one of the terms um, that people use, I don't know if they still use it, the idea of hopium. Right. right. And I've, I've always thought I've always thought, you know, hopium being that, you know, the climate is is breaking apart. Things are going so bad. How can anybody realistically have any hope? Right, like like we're fooling ourselves to have any hope. I mean, it's all going downhill. But see, the point is, is part of the human condition, part of our brain is we we need hope to function as as a human being. I think, like somebody without complete hope is somebody who's you know almost completely depressed or catatonic, and they've given up with everything and anything in life. And you know, we know that people turn to drugs and, and alcohol and all of the, you know, play a lot of chess or whatever, right? I mean, so the, the point- But there is, I, a, there is a place though, this is one of the things that has become clear. It wasn't clear for me prior to these conversations. And it certainly has become much more clear is that the false binary that I either am hopeful or hopeless. As yes. if those are the only two options. And Black and is, white thinking. There is, that, yes. there is that place of being able to be, by and large, hope-free, where it's not about having hope, it's being hope for others. Like being yes. so generous or so kind or so loving or so contributing to your society, to your culture, to your right. neighborhood, to your family, that they yes. find hope in you. And uh, action, it's like hope and fear yes. are two sides of the same coin. And yes, so if you can whole... live in the place of hope-free, being a blessing to others, then you can be hope for others, whether you've got hope yeah. in terms of clinging to something, right? Yeah. I'll invite you sort of to bring this to closure by really focusing on three things. How would you coach or counsel, or just what would you offer to a young person, say somebody under 20? What would you say to somebody in their 20 to 60, sort of middle, you know, or 25 to 60, sort of? And then what would you say to somebody in their retiring years that would be, that would be a positive thing that you would give some positive coaching to those three life stages. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a, a tough one. Um, I think, um, 
I think in the, you know, we're, we're very, we're social creatures, right? So it doesn't matter what, what age, I think, you know, to have, to have a friend, to have meaning, some meaning in your life is, is very important, whatever age you, you are. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways that we have meaning is we kind of, you know, to, to kind of live uh, day, day to day, you know, to be grateful that, that, uh, you know, you can, you can, um, you know, go out, you can, you can breathe the air, you can, you can walk, you have a neighborhood to be, that you have friends. I mean, friend, we're social creatures. So we like to belong to groups, right? So at all of these ages, people are in groups, you know, the younger ages, it's their schoolmates, the middle ages, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's maybe, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, a lot of adults, they meet good friends um, through their kids, right? When their kids are young, they're doing play dates and things, and you meet a lot of people, and they, you know, they became become good friends for long periods of time. It's through your workplace, et cetera. And then when you're, you know, much older, you know, if you're, you know, it, it's if you're, you know, it's very important to have your friends or be part of a bridge club or to be, you know, bowling or whatever. See, this is why the virus is is so harmful oh, to all of these things, right? This is why it's so harmful because, you know, I mean, I like the messaging at first was stay home, stay home. And I'm thinking the messaging should be go outside, go outside and stay away from people, right? Go and enjoy nature, go and walk in nature. But it was stay home, like stay cooped up in a, a small place or whatever. And then, um, you know, but I am, and, um, you know, now, I mean, the big concern is that schools get back together and, uh, you know, the spread is going to be much larger and things will have to shut down. But, you know, it's essential. I, at least the message is what we need to do is becoming more clear in most countries. And, you know, you have to wear masks indoor. It's an indoor disease. You have to wear masks indoors. And if the ventilation is crap indoors and you're at much higher risk, if you open all the windows, you're indoors and you open all the windows and you've got a nice ventilation system, then great. But if you're in a cold climate, you know, and you then leave the windows open a crack and, you know, the HVAC system of heating, if that is, is filtering the air properly, then, then you're at lower risk. It's the, a lot of the older buildings are sealed tight, like you know, the nursing homes, schools, they're, they're sealed tight. A lot of buildings, you can't even open windows. And this is a huge problem, right? In those environments are very, very high risk. It's, it's an indoor disease. So, you know, but, and, but the mask, you know, and the surgical masks, the blue ones are as good. They're almost as good. They're, they're top notch and they're slightly worse. They're, 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 they're the best of the N95s, but I, most people can't breathe through those. I can't breathe through those yeah, more than no, about 20 yeah. minutes. I mean, uh, the, the blue ones, I mean, and so people just need to that, incorporate that as part of their life at the moment, but it's very, and, and see their, their friends and, you know, but try to meet outside and, and so yeah. on. So, so I don't know, but I mean, that it, that's, why, that's why it's so having such an impact on, on society because yeah. we're very social creatures and it really cuts into that, um, yeah. you know, but, but it will pass, right? So you know, things will pass, good things pass, bad things pass, you know, everything passes, right? So, you know, just uh, if you're living day, you know, if you're in a, in a really dismal state and really depressed about climate and, and you know, I mean, you'll, as, as days pass, you know, you will learn, you, you know, just 
focus on self-care, focus on mm -hmm. getting through, you know, day to day and things mm -hmm. will, will improve for you. They could still get a lot worse ex externally, <laughs> but your internal, um, you know, stasis, if you like, uh, stability can, can be intact and stay intact. So, yeah. And especially I've found, and many people in this conversation series have voiced to the degree that we look outside of ourselves and look at the people that we interact with our family, our friends, our neighbors, you know, old yes. you know, acquaintances, and just find ways to be a blessing to someone else. Just doing, you know, one yes. or two things a week that's a real contribution to someone else can yes. lift your own spirit for days. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. Well, Paul, anything that you'd like to say to bring this conversation to completion for yourself? Well, um, I, I think it's, uh, you know, I just I want to thank you for for, for doing this. And you said this is a, a, it's about 70 different people that you're getting inputs from. Um, and uh, there must be, you must be finding um, lots of commonalities of very much so. what people are doing and using. So um, I think it would be very, very useful for you to try to summarize some of these commonalities. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and that will be very beneficial to, to, uh, you know, to, to lots, lots of people. For more information about this project, go to postdoom.com.